Jesus tells a story that involves a judge. And this judge is not a just judge. In fact, Jesus describes him as a judge that doesn't respect God or man. And this judge, in his jurisdiction, has a woman who is a widow. And as we know, widows during this time especially were the most vulnerable people in the society. And this widow had been wrong. This widow had had an injustice done to her, and she went to the judge wanting justice. She wanted that wrong to be made right. But because he didn't care about people, this judge kept sending her away over and over and over again. Until finally, she had come to him so much. She had spent so much time in his presence. She had been so persistent that the judge finally relented and gave her justice. Not out of the goodness of his heart, but just out of a desire to never see her again. And then Jesus points out that it was the persistence of this widow that was able to bring her justice. And he said, I wonder if this kind of faith will be present when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And the story is about a few things. It reminds us that in our world that justice is hard to come by. That there are corrupt people in power who oppress people who are vulnerable. And we see that as a regular part of our existence. It's a story about the persistence of faith that this widow had where she was so determined to get justice that she went time after time after time before this corrupt judge. But this is also a story about God. Because in this story, Jesus is drawing a contrast between this amoral at best, but probably immoral judge who cared about no one, and now the God of the universe, who is not only judge, but he's father and he's creator. And he says, if this kind of judge, if this bad judge is able to give justice to this widow, how much more so will your God provide justice for you because he created you and he loves you and you belong to him? But when things are tough, And really, sometimes when things are good, it can be very easy to lose sight of who God is. It can be very easy to lose sight of what God does. And when that happens in our lives, it makes it very difficult in the midst of turbulent situations to trust in God, and particularly to trust in God's timing. In the book of James, James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to a group of people who were experiencing persecution. They were like the widow where they needed justice. And he writes to them this letter, and it comes to where we're going to be in James chapter 5 today, where he encourages these people, these followers of Christ, who are in the midst of a really difficult circumstance, to be persistent and to be patient. We've been looking through what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. The things that we've talked about so far are love, joy, and peace. And joy and peace can be very difficult to find in harsh circumstances. And in the same way, patience is a virtue that's difficult for us to grab onto, especially when things aren't going the way that we would like. But as Paul promises us in Galatians chapter 5 that when we experience these fruit of the Spirit, what we're experiencing is the freedom that Christ died to bring us. And so as we're in the last day of Advent, the last Sunday of Advent, which is a season about waiting and about being patient, as we're talking through the fruit of the freedom that comes in these fruit of the Spirit, we're going to look at how we grasp a hold of patience and how that patience leads us to freedom. And we're going to do that as James does by looking at three separate cases of people 
who exhibited patience in their lives. But I want to start by reading Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, so we can take this in context of the whole fruit of the Spirit, and then we'll read James chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. Galatians 5 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then in James 5, starting in verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that that's one of the characteristics that defines who you are, that you're not quick to anger against us, God, but you give us chance after chance, time after time, that you are so gentle and so kind with each and every one of us. But the truth is, we're not always patient like that with you. We're not patient like that with ourselves. We're not patient like that with others, because it's just really hard to be patient, God, you've given us patience, not as a burden, but as a gift. And so help us to see the beauty in patience, the beauty in waiting and enduring through any circumstances. And remind us that when patience feels hard to obtain, when patience feels hard to grab, remind us of who you are, of your grace, of your mercy, of your compassion, of your purpose. And allow us to find joy in that, to find peace in that, and let joy and peace lead to patience as we wait for you to make all things right and all things new. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing James tells us to do is to consider the farmers. He says, consider the farmers. And I found a description of a day in the life of a farmer's wife in about the turn of the century, in about 1900. And she says basically she would wake up around 4 o'clock. She would get dressed, comb her hair, start a fire in the stove. While the stove was getting hot, she would go out to her flower garden, and she would get some flowers and put some of them in her hair. She would sweep the floor and then cook breakfast. While everybody else was eating breakfast, she would go out and strain away the milk that her husband had brought in. She takes care of her husband by filling up his dinner pail, and then he goes to work. At this point, it's about 5.30. He leaves for work, and then she goes about the rest of her work tending to the cattle. And so and sometimes the, the cattle would break through the fence, and she would have to go rescue the cattle and bring them back in and get the sheep where they need to go. By about 6.30 a.m., she's still not eating breakfast, but she says that she can wait. She makes the bed. She straightens up the living room. She goes through all of her chores inside of the house. All that gets done at about 7.15 a.m., 
Then she heads out to wash the clothes, gets all the churning done. It's starting to get hot now, and then she goes out and takes care of the weeds and starts working in the field. At 11.30, it's time for lunch. She combs in, she combs her hair, she puts fresh flowers in again, and then they eat lunch. Then she goes out, and she feeds and waters the chickens, and she takes care of all the livestock. She sews another flower bed, I guess, so she can have more flowers in her hair for the next few days. That's really impressive, by the way. Like, can we just focus on, that's, if I'm doing any of this, like, we're going to be lucky if I'm dressed. And so she's going through all of this stuff. She starts harvesting wheat. She makes this other flower bread. She digs around the shrubbery. She starts working out in the fields. About 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's time to go in and get supper ready. And all of this stuff is taking place while her husband's working on a different farm so that she can take care of this one. And by 8 o'clock, after she's gotten everything inside where it needs to go, then it's time for the husband to come home. They eat supper. She gets the bed ready. At 9 o'clock at night, she says a short prayer and goes to bed. It's a busy day. That's a full day in the life of this farmer's wife and in the life of the farmer. And when we see James making this example of how we're supposed to look to the farmers, all of a sudden we realize that patience might be a little more than we think. For me, patience is usually just not snapping at somebody when we're getting on my nerves or calmly waiting in line at a store. But James says, see how the farmer waits. He doesn't say, see how the gatherer waits. He doesn't say, see how people who are opportunistic waits. He says, see how the farmer waits. And the farmer doesn't just sit by waiting for crops to grow. Every day was filled with stuff like this for farmers where they have to go out and they have to break the ground. They have to do the normal chores. They have to take care of the land. They have to plant the seeds. They have to water it. They have to care for the crops. They have to care for their home life. All of this stuff is taking place, and we would hardly call that patience. That just feels a lot like work. But for farmers, especially in this ancient world that James is living in, farmers know that there's work needing to be done, but they're also equally aware there are things that they're beyond their control. James says, see how the farmers wait for the first and the last rains, that there is some part of this equation that the farmers have no ability to take care of on their own. And this shows that especially in the ancient world, there wasn't a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. For the farmer, there was no difference between doing the work that they were called to do as farmers and using the gifts that God had given them and then waiting on God to do the rest. Christian patience is a lot like the patience of the farmers. It's something that first and foremost is born out of peace. It's born out of the understanding that there are some things in this world that we have no control over. But it also reminds us that we're called to do work as well. That we're called to be actively doing what God has called us to do in the world and then trusting him with everything beyond our abilities because we trust in him for the things that are within our abilities as well. But that's a hard thing to do because I don't know if you're like me, but I imagine most of us at least at some point in our lives feel this way. I don't like feeling powerless. I don't like feeling like there are things that are beyond my control. And if there's any way possible that I can put my hands on something and make things happen more quickly, then I will. Because I'm, I'm a shortcut taker, and not because it's not out of cheating. It's just sometimes out of this feeling that if I can get it done faster and more efficiently, then maybe I can move on to something else, and I don't have to be patient. But waiting, even in the midst of work, is something that can feel like agony. 
But when we look at patience, when we look at waiting in light of who God is and what God has done about the characteristics of a God who loves us and who sends the rains when they're necessary in our lives, all of a sudden we start to see the beauty in it. Like the farmers, James calls us here to wait for the return of Christ and to trust in God and his timing and to do the work that we're called to do as we wait. Our waiting should never be idle. Our waiting should never be apathetic. We don't just sit back and watch the skies and hope that Jesus comes and fixes all the problems because we have a calling and a responsibility to go into the broken places of the world and bring restoration and bring healing as we wait for Christ to fix the rest of the things that we can't, to fix the things that are beyond our control. Our job is to be beacons of this hope to come, just like the farmers would trust in the work that God was going to do by bringing the crops into fruition. They were out doing the work in expectation for that to take place. So we should never be idle. We should never be apathetic, but we should be patient. The season of Advent reminds us that we're called to tirelessly work while we wait. And so as we think about patience, as we think about this long suffering that we go through, especially as we wait for Christ, we should always remember that we're called to tirelessly work while we do it. And so we consider the farmers. James also says to consider the prophets. He says, an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And when I read this, the first prophet that jumped into my mind was the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah lived a hard life. Jeremiah suffered through a lot of things, but for a very good reason. Jeremiah was prophesying in the midst of a really turbulent time in the life of God's people because it was right there where the Babylonians were coming in and taking them off into exile. And so Jeremiah would speak these words. He would prophesy some really harsh things, and nobody likes to hear the things that Jeremiah was saying, and so he suffered repeatedly for it. A couple examples come out of Jeremiah 37 and 38. In chapter 37, it says, Now when the Chaldean, or the Babylonian army, had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among his people. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a century there named Arajah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans, basically accusing him here of being a traitor. And Jeremiah said, it's, it's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Arijah would not listen to him, so he seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary for to be made into a prison. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, the king sent for him, and the king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word for the Lord? And Jeremiah says, There is. And then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. So as a summary here of what takes place in Jeremiah's life here, he's trying to come home. He's trying to find some rest. He's trying to find some comfort in his own people. And then when he gets to the gate, they say, nah, we think you're a traitor. And so they throw him in prison and he suffers there after taking a pretty good beating. And then the king brings him up and says, hey, man, so tell me what's really going on. And then even after being beaten, even after being thrown in prison, Jeremiah tells the truth. In chapter 38, 
Jeremiah starts speaking. He says, thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. And then the officials came to the king because nobody likes to be told that you're all going to die. And they said, let this man be put to death for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of his people, but his harm. Then the king said, behold, he is in your hands for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah, they cast him into the cistern of Malchai, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. It's a bad couple days for Jeremiah, right? And all he's trying to do is be a good prophet. He's trying to speak on behalf of the Lord. He's trying to give the people the information that they need to know. But it makes them so angry and it hurts them so deeply that they just beat him up, throw him in prison, and then throw him in a well so that he could sink in mud. And this was a theme of Jeremiah's entire life. For his entire life, Jeremiah would speak the word of God and then he would suffer. And he had to be patient in the midst of that suffering for every moment of his life, every moment of his existence. But Jeremiah wasn't alone in that. In Hebrews chapter 11, at the end, when it's talking about all these great heroes of the faith, starting in verse 35, it says that women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. So here you have the story of other prophets, other people who were trying to live a life that reflected the goodness of God and speaking out on behalf of God, and this was the life that they were entitled to. These are people that the writer of Hebrews says the world wasn't worthy. These were great men and women. And yet in the midst of that, they were dealing with incredible persecution, incredible hardship. And the best of them were just getting to wander around in the deserts and in the mountains with no people caring anything about them. But they were patient in their suffering because they were waiting for this better life. Following and doing the will of God can be incredibly difficult on its own. Just day-to-day living in a way that glorifies God and honors his will and seeks after his purpose can be incredibly difficult all by itself. But then when you throw in opposition, then when you throw in persecution, then when you throw in all of this suffering, then it can be overwhelming and almost feel impossible. As we've seen over the past couple weeks, joy and peace are things that can be very hard to find in the midst of suffering. We've seen that it's possible, and we've seen what joy looks like in the middle of suffering, but it's still an incredibly difficult thing to take hold of. When we're in the middle of difficult times, feeling peace, especially a peace that surpasses all understanding, can be a very foreign thing. But I think patience, even more than joy and peace, is a difficult thing to have in the life of a Christian. And we've been talking about all these things in the context of suffering because the reality is that all of us suffer. 
that all of us go through different difficult times, and it's easier to be joyful. It's easier to have peace. It's easier to be patient when things are going well, but it's much more difficult when things aren't. And peace can be harder than, or excuse me, patience can be harder than joy and peace because we can be joyful for a little while, right? We can be peaceful for a little while because if things are just going on for a moment in time, then I can do that. I could probably run a sprint right now if I need to. Now, maybe not. I might just pass out and die currently. But when I'm not sick, like, I feel like if I have to run for my life for a, a little stretch, I could probably make that run. If someone of higher endurance is chasing me and we're going for a couple miles, I should probably just surrender because I'm not going to make that cut. And that's what it feels like with patience. I can be joyful right now when things are hard. I can be peaceful maybe for a moment when things are hard, but when I start having to wait, then it gets difficult. Then patience is a much harder thing to see implemented in our lives. So how were they able to do it? How was Jeremiah able to be patient in his suffering? How were these heroes of our faith, these men and women in Hebrews, how were they able to go through such suffering for such a long time and to be so patient about it? I think James gives us one important step. In verse 8, he says, You also be patient and establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Other translations change that word to strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And what we find in all of these examples and all of these people is that they strengthened their hearts. They established their hearts in the truth of what God was doing. Jeremiah was able to see a little bit into the future and know that God had a plan and God had a purpose. And even if it lasted longer than his life, he was willing to be patient because he knew that God had something better. They strengthened their hearts and they kept their eyes looking forward. I got really seasick on a boat a couple years ago. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, because I've never gotten seasick before. It was a very sombering moment. I realized my mortality, that my body was just getting old and weak while I'm puking over the side of a boat. And so I was seasick, and they kept telling me, the first mate and the captain, just look at the horizon. Look at the horizon, because it's supposed to help kind of balance you out. I think I was too far gone for that, but I got the idea of what they were trying to get across. When you're growing up, if you play baseball or softball, they always tell you when you're hitting to keep your eye on the ball, right? Because it's much easier to hit the ball if you watch it over its trajectory than if you look away and are distracted by what's around you. You hear people all the time in races saying, just keep your eye on the finish line. Keep your eye on the prize. And what that does when we look ahead and we keep our eye on the ball, it takes all of the distractions that can keep us from our purpose and our mission, and it blocks those out so that we can see all that's important and all that matters. And that's what Jeremiah did. That's what these prophets, that's what these men and women were doing in the midst of hard circumstances that could not just distract them, but destroy them. Jeremiah and these people saw the world the same way that Paul did, the same way that Peter did, the same way that James does here. They saw the world and they saw their circumstances through eternal eyes. They kept looking forward because they knew that the Lord is at hand. As we've looked through these several passages of Scripture now, looking at these different fruit of the Spirit, we've seen the constant theme here. And it's nice because it fits in with the theme of Advent because in almost every passage, we've seen some allusion to or direct statement that the Lord is at hand, that the Lord is near, that the coming of Christ is soon. And it's easy for that to start to sound redundant. 
It's easy for me to even feel it now four weeks into talking about these individual fruit of the Spirit because I feel like I've said that every week. Just hold on because the Lord is at hand. Hold on because Christ is coming to make all things right and all things new. And sometimes it doesn't feel very true because we're reflecting on Advent 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And so when we think about this idea that Christ is supposed to come back and fix everything, the more times we light those candles, the more years you see those candles lit, it can start to feel like, I don't know that this is happening. And it can start to make us impatient. And so even though this may sound redundant and repetitive, it's something that's vital. It's something that's incredibly important in our lives to know that the return of the Lord is at hand because we can't live out these fruit of the Spirit without first having a firm hope in the eternity that we have in Christ. Without that hope, this world can easily turn our love into hate. Without that hope, our joy can easily be turned into sorrow. Our peace can easily be turned into crushing anxiety. And it can start to rob us of our perspective that we need to patiently bear our hardships in the midst of our lives. Sometimes Jeremiah is called a weeping prophet because he did endure so much sadness. He did ensure, endure so much hardship and rejection and even physical oppression. But what we see in Jeremiah is not someone who's weak. But what we see in Jeremiah is a resolute man of God who endured his suffering patiently and continued to proclaim the word of God. He was never deterred from doing what God had called him to do because he knew that he had a better hope in God than he could ever put in anything else around him. And so no matter what he suffered, no matter what he endured, he knew that God was better. And ultimately, as he was looking forward to the coming of Christ, he knew that the salvation that Jesus would bring would be better. Living for Christ is a costly endeavor sometimes. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it bears with it opposition. But the cost is minimal compared to the reward. And so we're called like Jeremiah and like the people in Hebrews to look forward to this promise that we have at the end of Revelation when it says that Christ is going to come and make all things right and all things new. All of the brokenness, all of the hardship, all of the difficult things in our lives will be wiped away. No more tears, no more shame, no more sin, no more death. All of the brokenness will be put together and he'll come with justice in his hand to put to death all of the things that have caused us harm. And that reward is worth waiting for. And so we can strengthen our hearts and realize that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then finally, we're told to consider Job, to look at the life of Job. In fact, James says that you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. What happens when you can't find anyone to blame for your suffering? Because at least Jeremiah could look around and he could see the people that were causing him harm and say, you are the reason that I'm suffering and one day God is going to bring justice for me against you. But what happens when we can't put our finger on who's causing it? What happens when we have to be patient with God? That's what Job tells us about. In the story of Job, you have this man who is considered the most righteous man anyone could ever find. And at the beginning of Job, we get this strange, really abnormal picture into kind of the behind the scenes of the spiritual world, like almost nowhere anywhere else in Scripture has to offer. And we see the whole counsel of God come up and give a report to God. And Satan is there too. The adversary is there. 
And God calls him out. He says, what have you been doing? He's like, I'm just doing my thing. I'm going back and forth. I'm finding people to devour. You know how I roll. And then God says, have you considered Job? Like, just throws him under the bus. Like, this righteous guy who has everything he could possibly need. God says, oh, so you're taking people down. Have you thought about Job? Because <laughs> he really loves me. And he really worships me. And he's a righteous man. And, and so there's this interaction where Satan says, well, it's probably because he has everything. And God says, fine, take it. <laughs> and so he does. And we see Job go from one of the wealthiest, most prosperous people in all of the region to having nothing. And within just a few chapters of the book of Job, his life has gotten so bad that his wife, the woman who's supposed to love him more than anyone else in the world, the woman who's been with him through everything, walks up to Job in the midst of his pain and says, Honey, you should just curse God and die. And then she leaves. And then Job's friends start coming to him. and They say all of these things about, you know, maybe you've done something wrong. Maybe this is your fault. Maybe you need to repent of something. And they just kept throwing all these things at Job. But through the entire time, Job remained resilient. And he trusted in God's grace and mercy. Job is absolutely one of, if not the most difficult books in the Bible. Because Job destroys the narrative that we desperately want to believe. Job makes us face realities that we don't want to face. Because when we see bad people suffer and people who do bad things, we think, yeah, like you get what's coming to you. That's how this thing should work. Bad people get bad things done to them. And that's the, that was the worldview around the life of Job. Around the time that Job was written, the thought was, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, then bad things come to you. But now you have a story in the midst of that where Job is a good man suffering more than anyone else around him. We get why Jeremiah suffered. Okay, Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He was saying really harsh things that nobody wants to hear. So of course they're going to punish him. Of course they're going to lash out against him. But Job was just living his life. He wasn't a prophet. He was just a guy that loved God with everything inside of him. And yet now we see him suffering to a level that most people can't comprehend. But through it all, Job remained faithful. Job remained patient. As the ESV says here, Job remained steadfast. Vine's Dictionary breaks this word down. This word that's translated here as steadfast can also be looked at as endurance. It says that this word means to abide under suffering or to bear up courageously. And I love that language there, that, that the steadfastness is abiding in the midst of, of suffering. So abiding is not trying to get out of something. Abiding is not something disappearing. But when you abide in something, you are in it for the foreseeable future. And so Job was in the midst of his sufferings with really no light at the end of the tunnel. And in the midst of that, he's able to say something like this. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, I will, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, talking to his friends, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. He says, let my enemy be as the wicked. 
And let him who rises up against me as the unrighteous, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts them off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Job says, no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances I face, no matter what things I go through, I'm going to remain resolute. I'm going to remain strong. I'm going to keep focusing after God, and I'm not going to waver in my integrity or my righteousness because he trusted in God that deeply. And then this discourse keeps going back and forth all the way up until Job chapter 39 through 42. Now, I reference Job 39 a lot because I think I have these conversations with God. Job, after finally just getting to a point of breaking down, hears from God. And he doesn't answer the way that we would expect him to. Because Job was a righteous man, he was a good man, and he was suffering. And so you would think that God would come to him and say, listen, it's okay, here's why I'm doing this. Here's what's going on in your life. Maybe here's a sin that you can correct. Here's some things that are taking place. This is the purpose of all of this so you can figure it out because I'm working all this to the good of those who love me and all this kind of stuff. And so we think that's how God should answer, but he doesn't. God just comes to Job and says, who are you? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? And God starts going down this resume with Job about who he is as the eternal sovereign creator over the universe. And we would think that that would be an insufficient answer for Job because that's not the question that he asked. He didn't say, who are you? He said, why are you doing this? But after God's answer, listen to what Job says in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is kind of an eloquent way of Job saying, yeah, you're right. I was speaking out of turn. I didn't know what I was saying because I was, I was doubting you. And, and I, my circumstances were hard and they were awful, but I just forgot who you were. And now he's calling his life in the midst of all of this chaos. He says, I just didn't understand these things that are, are too wonderful for me to grasp. And he says, but now my eyes see you. He says, now I know who you are. And it doesn't matter my circumstances. It doesn't matter the difficulties in my life because I remember now that you are a God who is compassionate and merciful and that your purpose and that your plan is far beyond anything that I could ever expect or imagine. Now, at the end of the book, Job has his fortune restored, but he doesn't ask for it. What we see in this book is that Job was willing to endure a lifetime of suffering and a lifetime of unanswered questions because he knew the God he served. Even though he didn't know the reasons, even though he didn't have any understanding of the deeper things that were going on, he knew who God was and he knew the promises of that God. And so even in the midst of his pain and even in the midst of his chaos and confusion, he trusted God to be compassionate and merciful to remain steadfast, to be able to abide under suffering 
in the midst of uncertain and confusing pain is hard. And that's why James calls us to look to the example of Job, because that's when we see this kind of patience, not just with your circumstances, not just patience with the people around you, but Job has to experience patience with God, because God says, I'm not going to tell you why this is happening, because you don't need to know it right now. You just need to know that I am good and that I am faithful. And when we do that, when we get to that point, when we see things like Job, We're able to trust in the purpose, mercy, and compassion of God. James says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, James talking to people who know very well what suffering and what hardship and oppression feels like. He says, you know, you've seen the purpose of God. You know his compassion. You know his mercy. Simply by trusting in Christ for salvation, you realize that God has done something for you that is compassionate and merciful beyond compare. Even if the only thing that we ever received from God was salvation, that was the salvation that cost God everything, that he stepped into earth and that he took the cross, that he took our shame, that he took the pain of our death and the humiliation that we deserve. He took it all on himself for us. It doesn't get more compassionate. It doesn't get more merciful. And he did it all because he has this plan to restore all things to himself, to reconcile all things to himself. And so James says that if you trust in Christ, you've seen God's purpose. It might not be clear right now. It might not be something that's on the front of your mind because your circumstances are so hard. But you have seen the purpose of God before in your life. You've seen his compassion. You've seen his mercy. And so cling on to what you know to be true about God during the times when he feels unknowable. Trust God during those seasons that seem chaotic and that seem like you'll never be able to outlive them. Trust in God during those times and be patient with steadfastness and endurance. James says that Job was a blessed guy. He says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast in Job. Job remains steadfast. And so when we remain steadfast, even though we might not feel like it, We're blessed. We're blessed by God, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our suffering. It's not the things that just make us say that we're blessed. You know, when you get a new job, when you get a new car, when you get something good happening in your life, then it's easy to say, I'm blessed. It's hard to see that when they're in the midst of pain and suffering, but it's no less true because we're blessed because we belong to a God who loves us, even in the midst of our suffering, to a Savior who suffered all things just like we did so that we can have the salvation, and to a Holy Spirit who is our comforter and our counselor in the most dark of times. And so when we endure the way that Job endures, we are blessed because we have something better than our circumstances. We have a hope in Christ that's worth waiting for. Patience is a virtue that so many times we look at as harsh and unpleasant. You hear people all the time say, don't ask God for patience because you might get it, right? Because we're scared that we might have to actually put that into practice. And so the thought of becoming patient seems just like an unnecessary burden. But in reality, patience, just like love, just like joy, just like peace, is a gift from God. It's a precious fruit that he gives to his children because he loves us. 
As I said, I don't do distance running. I barely do short distance running. I'm trying to do more running, but I still don't like it. I don't know why anybody does. But people say, and I'll never experience this a day in my life, so maybe you can ask Sonny if this is true, but if you run for a long time, eventually you hit this point where it's supposed to get euphoric, which I don't know. But it's supposed to be that if you hit this certain point in this distance, that if you exert yourself so much, that this running starts to feel not like a burden, but like a bliss. The same thing is very true, but much more about patience. Because as we're learning patience, as we're growing in patience, it feels like hard work. It feels like breaking the ground in a field and planting the seeds. It feels like a hot day beating on top of you. It feels like it's never going to click. But the more and more that we learn to be patient through the grace and mercy of God, the more and more we'll realize how wonderful it is. The more and more we'll realize how good it is. The more we'll be able to be patient with God in the midst of the times when we don't understand it. The more we'll be able to be patient in the midst of our circumstances. The more we'll be able to be patient with other people. Because we'll experience that patience of God. So how do we obtain it? What are the steps that we put into place? Very quickly. First and foremost, we have to know the one that we're waiting for. Just like Job, just like the prophets, just like the farmers, our road to patience starts with knowing God. It starts with loving God. It starts with believing God and understanding who he is and recognizing his good character so that when we can't trust our circumstances, we can trust the one who is sovereign over them. And so it starts with spending time in scripture. It starts with spending time in prayer. It starts with talking with other people about who God is and and how we see God revealed to us in scripture and how amazing and faithful he is. Then we have to know what we're waiting for. We have to be constantly, if not daily, reminded that we have a hope that goes beyond this life, that we don't live our best life now, that this isn't the best that we have to hope for, but that we have a promise in Christ that our eternity is so far beyond what's happening right now, even the good times and especially the bad times, that our eternity is so much better that one day all of this is going to feel like a distant memory. Then once we know God and once we know what we're waiting for, then we're called to establish our hearts, like James says. To strengthen our hearts in that truth. To realize that as we walk in faith, faith is not a tightrope. Faith is not walking on thin ice. But faith is the ability to trust in the substance that God has put beneath our feet. And to know that these things are true and allow it to strengthen us even in our weakest times. James also throws in here in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may be judged, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Part of patience is learning to deal with one another, especially in the life of the church. I think that's where it has to start. We have to learn to look around the room and see the other people. And because hopefully, if we're doing church right, we're going to be sitting in a room, even a small room like ours, with people who come from different backgrounds, with people who come from different ethnicities, with people who come from all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. We're going to be around people that we like and people that, honestly, we probably wouldn't like somewhere else. And our personalities are going to clash and we're going to get tired of each other and things are going to be hard. And we have to learn to be able to do life together together as family, not as strangers who happen to come together once a week. 
And so we have to learn not to grumble or complain against one another, but be like the Bible calls us to, to be iron, sharpening iron, to be encouraging one another and loving each other and caring for one another and giving chance after chance after chance and offering forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness and not grumbling or complaining, but loving one another with a Christ-like love and then to take that outside of the doors. Then to step outside of the church building and to look at the people around us and say, I love you, and be patient with them, and, and trust in the grace and mercy of God, even, as the Bible says, even when it's our enemies, even when it's people that hate us, even when it's people that, that don't want anything good for us, we're not supposed to grumble or complain against them either, but to love them with that Christ-like love and to be patient with them. We should also consider the example of others. We can start with the ones that James lays out here. Consider the farmers. Consider the prophets. Consider Job. But I also think it's really important to, to consider the people in our lives who are, are good at being patient. The, the struggle, I think, with the fruit of the Spirit is that some of us are naturally better at others than others are. So you might be a naturally self-controlled person, but you might not be a very loving person. And so that love has to grow up inside of you a little faster than the self-control. And so there may be people in your life who are just more patient than you. And that's not hard for me because I'm not patient at all, even a little bit. And so I like to surround myself with people who are patient so I can watch them be patient not only with God, not only with me, but with all the people around them so that I can see how they do that and implement that in my life as well. We have to see the purpose of the Lord. We have to not only know God, but we also have to know what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then in the times when we can't know those details and we can't hold on to those things, we just remember that God is good and that God is sovereign and that God has a plan and a purpose for all things, that he works all things to the good of those who love him. We have to remember the compassion and mercy of God. Because if it hasn't happened yet, there will be a time in your life when something happens that's so devastating and so heartbreaking that in your mind and in your heart you think, how could God possibly be compassionate? How could God possibly be merciful? If God was compassionate, if God was merciful, why would this happen in my life? Why would I be suffering through this? Why would I be going through this? Why is this part of the plan? Why is this part of my life? And it's in those moments when we have to remember the times when we've very clearly seen the compassion and mercy of God. And that always starts with the cross. When God stretched himself out and suffered a humiliating and horrifying death because that's how much he loved us. So remember his compassion and mercy. And then we have to wait. But we wait actively. We wait not idly, we wait not apathetically, but we wait actively doing the work that we're called to do because we believe with certainty from the promise of Scripture that God has a job for us, that God has a role for us, that we're supposed to be going out into the world and sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Christ. We're supposed to be going out in the world caring for widows and orphans. We're supposed to be loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute. We're supposed to be encouraging one another. We have important life-giving work that we're supposed to be doing, and so we have to be actively doing it, but also trusting that even though we can't do it all, even though we can't accomplish it all, that one day Christ will return and make everything right and everything new. And so we wait patiently, but we wait actively because the coming of the Lord is near.